The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us again, and great to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Elliot, let's start with you this week. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. I, uh, this week, wanted to do an ode to Expectations Investing by Michael Mobison. It's a book that, if you recall my episode on reverse engineering DCFs, that was where I got to that idea from. And you know, just recently, Mobison released an updated new edition of Expectations Investing. And I'd urge everyone to go out there and read it. Um, November was not my finest month in markets, but I really took some joy in spending evenings reading this book and refreshing on what I'd learned coming at it with a new angle. I hadn't read the book in a very long time. It was one, you know, the original edition I'd read more than once when I was in my more formative stages and putting together what my worldview was. Um, so I hadn't read it since I, what I'd say, while I'm always feeling the need to be dynamic and, you know, evolve my process, like since I've had my worldview, I hadn't read it and gone at it from that lens. And I thought it was a really fun, really good exercise. And I really enjoyed reading it. You know, the writing, the case studies, everything's pretty interesting. So, you know, everyone uh, in this community is probably familiar with Charlie Munger saying, invert, always invert. And I think this is the actual embodiment of that as far as analysis goes. The core premise of expectations investing is that you can take a stock's price and reverse engineer um, the expectations embedded in there. And so, you know, we could do something as simple as uh, take the sell side expectations, build out a model and see what that pushes out to, but that often won't align to what exactly is in the stock price today. So you take the stock price, you build that DCF, but you don't actually do the forecast, you play around with what assumptions get you to today's price. Um, and I think some of the important points and some of the takeaways that I'd want to reemphasize here is... One of the keys underlying it all is to hone in on the value drivers and value factors behind the business itself. So it's not just about understanding like what's embedded in terms of top line growth and what sort of margin structure it is. It's like, what is this business model most sensitive to? What are some underlying forces? Get beneath revenue. Like, what are the KPIs that drive revenue? Why do they matter? What do they do? Which ones are, are most sensitive to? So like understand the points of leverage in the business and understand where risk lies. Because if you have a better sense and a better feel for that, you'll know what it is. 
Um, and so these factors, they'll be your North Star as you hold an investment too. Like once you've done your analysis and you've already made an investment, those are going to be the things you isolate on, the things that you focus on. So this ties to the podcast that where I talked about simplifying to one or two key variables. I think that's extremely important and something not enough people tend to think about or do. You know, it's very easy to slap on a multiple. It's very easy to, you know, think about what a comparable might be, but it's very hard to think intrinsically about a business. And when you do this, what you're doing is you're setting the actual hurdles for the stock. When you reverse engineer a DCF, you know which numbers need to be exceeded to get a better outcome than is embedded in today's stock price, right? You don't just want to buy something where you're getting the cost of capital. Um, you want to buy something that's cheap. You want to buy something that's a discount and you're looking to find that margin of safety. That's your margin of safety when you have real faith that one of these numbers is going to be better than it's actually implied by the stock itself. One of the other uh, ideas that I really like from this is market implied forecast period. So you want to like model out how long the market expects the company to deliver value added growth for. And you know that's effectively the amount of time it'll take until they're um, no longer growing uh, or you know uh, in, in one of the worst scenarios where they're still growing but not adding value with the growth. Um, and this is going to tell you, you know, whether there's some interesting opportunities. To me, it's one of the key sources of opportunity where you could find companies that have a duration of growth that's greater than is implied or embedded in the market. So according to Mobison, the average period, the average implied uh, market implied forecast period is five to 15 years with a range of zero to 30 years. And, you know, the typical DCF that people do, the conventional form is a five-year DCF. So given the average stock has much longer than a five year uh, range to their implied forecast period, you might think there's some really uh, big risks and opportunities in being able to think a little longer term and being able to extend these things out. And not being able to is probably the wrong phrase and actually doing it, right? Everyone's able to. Um, and I think it's especially important in a world where the average price target from a sell sider is looking at something two years out and slapping a multiple on it, not really thinking on this dimension. So when you could play a different game and you could approach things, especially when it's aligned with your timeframe of, of investing, looking out farther, uh, holding stocks for a long period of time, I think it's incredible, incredibly helpful. There's some great case studies in the book. I especially love the Domino's one, which walks you through the process of actually running these uh, exercises and backing into the embedded expectations and asking the right questions and thinking things through. Um, and there's a section on valuing real options, which I think is a true gem. Uh, a true gem. It's like something that makes uh, very tangible the abstract idea that some companies have embedded optionality in them. It gives you a, a tool set and an ability to be able to assign an actual value to the embedded options in a company and think about whether they're realistic or not. Um, I think one of the points Mobison made a couple times in the book is that the typical management team, you know, this is not just geared to investors, it's geared to operators as well, to managers, to help them understand their business better. And he said when he's shown this process to managers, uh, he's been surprised. Uh, they, no, the managers are often surprised at just how much is embedded in their stock prices and how high the hurdle might be, even ones who think their stock is quite cheap. 
And so I think it's enlightening and eye-opening to think things through this way. It's very different than going about the process of just extrapolating the past to the future, very different than, you know, thinking about anything else. Um, so personally, it's one of the most important findings I've had as an analyst. It was really inspiring to revisit it, come at it with a new lens. And, um, you know, I'd strongly recommend anyone read the book. It's not a very long read, but it's a very important one. And, and, and there's a lot to take away from it. Curious, have you guys read the book? Do you have some ideas? Uh, what do you think of, in general, of the idea of inverting and working backwards with the stock's price? Yeah, I'm excited to read it. I have not read the new version yet. I've certainly read the old one. I think I've read it twice, but it's been many years now. So I will certainly go back and, and read the new one. Uh, it, it would be on my short list of books that I think that are reading two or worth reading two or three times. And that's, you know, out of the couple of hundred investing related books that I've read, there's really only 10 or 15 that I think would meet that threshold. And this would be one of them, as would be a lot of the topical essays that Michael Mobison's written over the years too, which are just excellent. I mean, you know, both in my own class and in, in life, when I get asked, okay, what should I start with? What should I read? And whether that's a student, uh, you know, in the business school level, undergrad level, uh, you know, somebody out in the world just trying to make their way and understand business and investing a little better. This is one of the things that I recommend just right off the top. So I am looking forward to, to reading the book. And it, as a quick shout out, by the way, I think, uh, it's worth noting that I, I've said several times that my sort of aha moment in life as it pertains to business and investing came from Roger Lowenstein's book about Warren Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. I'm really looking forward to having Roger um, on the podcast here shortly. It'll probably be uh, six or eight weeks from now. He's got a new book coming out and, and he's going to come on in conjunction with that. But likewise, this book actually has a co-author, Al Rappaport, uh, who is a, a professor at Kellogg. I'm a good company man, so worth noting that. But M Michael Mobison actually credits Rappaport with being his inspiration and the person who inspired his aha moment. And I think this is a perfect example of somebody that can take work that somebody did that they found valuable and even take it a next step, take it a step further, right? Because I think Mobison's perspective as sort of a crossover practitioner academic, he's on the faculty at Columbia Business School, is really unique, but he's had, you know, one or, or most of the time, both feet in the business world and, and understands it far better than I think your average tenured PhD academic does. So I think that's really worth pointing out on both fronts, both the inspiration, that aha moment that we all need in life at one point or another, and taking uh, that work to the next level by having kind of that cross-disciplinary approach and a real gift for writing, by the way. I mean, I think Mobus is just an excellent writer on top of it all, which is great. So yeah, but I mean, look, in terms of the, the core tenets of the book, I, I certainly couldn't agree any more with the idea of backing into the number. We've, we've, all, we've talked about DCFs on here and how flawed they can be, but this is an almost bulletproof way to figure out whether you're onto something or not, because at its core, you have to decide in any investment that you're considering whether your expectations differ from those of the market. If they don't, you know what, what is there really to do or what is there really to say? In this case, this is a very good way of elucidating what's baked into the price and what's not. And if you can find out something that you know might be slightly better or slightly worse, then then you're onto something. If not, you probably move on or just wait. And it's one of the things that's really stunning to me about the last year or two is just how little of this has seemed to matter and how much has gone on. It may be starting to matter more now, but the number of people that have come to me, both professionals and quote unquote amateurs as, as well, that have said over the last year or two, you know, X phenomenon is happening right now. That's good for company Y. Therefore, I'm going to buy the shares of company Y. And sure enough, the shares of company Y go way up. 
right? And that's not really a valid long-term framework. It's not even a valid short-term framework, even if you get away with it in the short run, right? I mean, it just violates all sorts of principles of, you know, the, the order of the world that just can't persist for very long. So you can you can play that game for some period of time, but it's very difficult to know when to get in and when to get out. And so if you can do this where, you know, you take an explicit view of what's baked in and what's not, where you differ from the market and where you don't, I think that's absolutely the right way to do it. And as a quick aside, uh, one thing I've really relied on over the years is the same sort of thing as the forecast period, right? For me, you know, look, a lot of people focus on a couple of years, right? That's not, it's not easy, but you know, that's pretty well covered ground. I tend to try to look out in the three to five year range to really develop where my expectations are different from the markets. And then where I get really excited is where my expectations are so different from the market that over that, say, first five year period, I can recoup, recoup maybe half of my initial outlay in real cash or real monetizable value. So I'm not just saying, okay, this company's value is going to go up because the multiple is going to re-rate or somebody's going to come in and, and take the company out at a higher price. But I'm really trying to decide where are my expectations? Where can I see them, right? And to your point, you know, 10 to 15 years is a long time, right? I mean, 10 to 15 years out, the world changes a lot in ways that are really hard to predict. I can't really forecast that very well. I don't think most people can really forecast that very well. Where you do have that one really brilliant insight, like, you know, the Jeff Bezos type insight of, you know, what are customers going to care about 10 or 15 years from now? What are the things that are not going to change? And when you can find one of those with this, with the person or the company that can actually capitalize on those trends, that's when you're really onto something. But, you know, beyond that, like there's, there's lots of businesses that looked really stable that turn out to not be very stable over 10 or 15 years. And I would point to some of the things we talked about last week where, you know, certain CPG brands, for example, are just nowhere near as stable over a 10 to 15 year horizon as a lot of people were baking into their expectations, you know, when they made that initial investment. So it gets really dangerous. And and by the way, I totally agree. This is a great book. If you're looking for something to send to your favorite CEO or executive team, this is a good book, uh, a good example of it, because it really does have practical implications for them. And it's a great way for them to kind of figure out what's in their stock. I mean, to your point, Elliot, um, I can think of a couple of CEOs where I've talked to them and they've said explicitly, look, I think the expectations are too high in our stock right now, but I don't know what to do about it. And so they're right. I don't know what to do about it either a lot of the time, but at least they're they're aware of it, right? And that does change things to a certain extent. And you know, for a lot of executives, I think they just bumble along without the slightest clue what the expectations are that are based and in, baked into their stock. And that can be, you know, really problematic at times. Well, Michael Mobison is always uh, insightful, and I'm sure many of our listeners uh, follow him and his his writings pretty closely. Uh, I want to say I, I read the first uh, edition of Expectations Investing more than 10 years ago. It's, I think it's been a while since that came out. And I'm just starting to get into the new edition. Uh, actually, next week, uh, MOI Global, we are hosting a uh, an online latticework event at which uh, Sarab Madan will have a virtual fireside chat with Michael Mobison about uh, the new edition of uh, the book. And uh, we're hoping to also release that um, conversation as a special episode of uh, this podcast. So stay tuned uh, for that. Um, I generally love the idea of inverting. I think there's so much that as an investor, one can uh, take from that and, and add it to one's analysis. 
Um, you know, if you just look at the, the some of the market darlings uh, that have traded at 50 plus times sales, um, if you did that kind of analysis and, and inverted and, and asked yourself what kinds of expectations are baked into that that kind of price, um, I think a lot of the folks buying those stocks might be surprised because I, I, I would venture to say that most of them uh, have not done that analysis. Um, conversely, I think you can find some great uh, buy uh, ideas uh, as well by applying this approach, um, especially I think as Elliot alluded, if you can kind of uh, be more confident about a longer duration of uh, value creative growth, I think uh, there are some really interesting opportunities that uh, that can emerge. A lot of uh, value oriented investors, uh, we like to say that we don't really forecast or or get into uh, setting expectations too much. Uh, we want to pay for what is and then let the future kind of be a bonus. Uh, but that's not really realistic a lot of the time. Uh, but also, I think this uh, inversion approach uh, is still useful. Even if one doesn't want to forecast uh, explicitly, you can at least see the market implied expectations and then ask yourself whether they seem reasonable, too low or too high. So this can definitely be a tool, I think, for pretty much any kind of fundamental uh, investor. Yeah, I think that's great. I think you're right on with that. One of the beauties of it is you can then just benchmark against what the key points are that matter. And so you, like you said, don't have to forecast. And I like, John, that you emphasized, uh, you know, I think I spoke a little more to opportunities using it, but it will help you stay out of trouble. And I think it will help you find situations. There are definitely some stocks out there today, more so maybe a month and a half ago, but it's still there today where you could say like, what are the implied expectations? And you start scratching your head, oh boy, that's unreasonable. And Phil, I really loved your point about Rappaport, who is a co-author here. Um, I should have mentioned the name, I apologize uh, for that. No, I think it's worth just pointing out, like, because I, like I said, I think a lot of the original ideas were his and then Mobis took it the next mile, right? Which is so important in all aspects of life, right? Like there's a good idea sitting out there, but it's kind of languishing in obscurity or it lacks that final application or whatever. And this is a great example of that. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the takeaways that, I, you know, as you said that, I was like, yeah, I should say this because it is one of my takeaways from the book too. It's like, don't just deploy this kind of tool itself. Think about how else you could apply inversion when you look at markets, when you look at opportunities. You know, one of my favorite examples of inversion analysis was in Capital Count. The uh, Marathon folks looked at the telecom industry and aggregated the entire uh, market cap of telecoms and looked at within, you know, I think it was five and 10 years, what degree of earnings they needed to justify those valuations relative to GDP. And it was like, wow, this just can't work no matter which way you look at it. Right, that's not exactly uh, what expectations investing is, but it is what expectations investing is. It's the spirit of it. So you know, I think uh, much like with Moneyball, initially it was about finding undervalued players. It wasn't just about thinking about you know how do I find people who could get on base and have unique power. It was like what are some other tools that I could 
think of with value. And I think everyone should be, um, you know, trying to tap into their creativity and figure out ways that they might deploy this kind of analysis even beyond the scope of what's covered uh, within the, the binder of the book. Yeah, no, that's fair. And one other way I've liked to apply it over the years is that I think as people, social beings, right? I mean, markets are prone to swing in pretty extreme directions, both up and down. And a lot of that results from, or maybe have cause and effect backwards, but the the over-extrapolation of the recent past, right? So back in the good old days when we used to get really juicy, interesting bankruptcies, it was often the case where a pretty decent company ran into a temporary problem it caused some sort of restructuring and everybody just extrapolated that forever. And it was like, well, wait a minute, what if the expectations are here that whatever caused this problem are going to persist forever, but instead what's more likely is we revert back to the mean and we go back to like this at least semi-prosperous future that more closely resembles the past. And to me, that's always been like a pretty decent working definition of old school capital V value investing, right? It's reversion to the mean investing, right? It's not about low price to book or whatever, right? I mean, that was a tactical playbook that worked for a short period of time, relatively speaking, but it was about reversion of the mean. And when, you, when you're playing expectations investing, I mean, you, you do have to decide, like, is this going to be mean reverting or not? And in a lot of cases, return on capital is not mean reverting, and the market is saying it will be. That gives you an amazing opportunity on the long side. In some cases, people are saying that sales growth will never be mean reverting when that often is mean reverting, right? And so if you can figure out what those expectations are, and where they're just totally out of step with common sense, reason, logic, history, you know, what has happened in the past and, and how that may relate to the future. I think that can be enormously valuable. And I, I do it all the time. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that's really important to think about exactly what degree of inertia there is on different things. And I think, was it last week that I talked about the challenges of forecasting and COVID in particular? Um, you know, I think uh, an expectations framework would would have been uh, is incredibly helpful in just looking through um, what degree of persistence the market has been pricing in um, on certain things. And, you know, I've been sitting here arguing that I do think there's a great degree of persistence and it probably overshot extrapolating that to the upside and now is overshooting on expecting mean reversion in, in some areas, not necessarily all areas. But, you know, I think I think it's very interesting to think about mean reversion, what degree it uh, operates on different companies, on different levels. And then, you know, I think another Mobison thing to think about is uh, base rates and understanding, you know, Phil, I think this is part of what you were alluding to on growth rates and mean reversion. It's like base rates of of maintaining 20 plus percent growth for a decade. You know, they're working against you in that sense. For sure. That's exactly it. Yeah. And if if something, if the expectations are discounting 20% revenue growth for a decade, that could well be the future, but it's a tough bet a lot of the time. Absolutely. Well, we uh, may have a chance to hear directly from Michael Mobison on a special episode uh, of the pod soon. Phil, let's uh, move over to you. Yeah, thanks, John. So I want to talk this week about an essay I read that you actually sent around in your weekly digest of uh, reading material, which I've found super valuable over the years. Uh, And it was an essay written by someone whose name I believe is Rohit Krishnan. I apologize if I'm getting that wrong at the believe a semi pseudonymous blog or something. I'm not quite sure. Although his Twitter account uh, was originally the the source of this essay, but the the title of the essay was how much should you lie? And so if you Google that, I'm sure you'll be able to find it or we can link to it in the show note. And the the subtitle was lies, damn lies and Lambda school. 
and on truth and narratives not being facts. And so I started reading this with low expectations and was kind of surprised at how thought-provoking and well-written the, th- the whole thing really was. And it ties back into what we talked about last year, roughly a year ago, I think, with this concept that Jim Chanos has propagated about the golden age of fraud. You know, he, he's kind of got a working thesis. I don't know how tongue-in-cheek it is, but I think he's, he's pointing it out in the context of lots of ongoing frauds that are you know, pretty well-known or discovered on a regular basis right now. And this essay actually takes a slightly different tack that ties into a bunch of things that are going on right now. And one of my favorite writers of all time, bar none, we just talked about Michael Mobison, another one in that same league is Matt Levine at Bloomberg. And Matt Levine talked about this concept last year in light of the Lordstown Motors fiasco where Lordstown said they had all these orders and they just totally lied about the whole thing. And in the context, I think of Nikola, which if anyone doesn't remember, Nikola was the, I believe, hydrogen fuel cell powered truck that said we have a working demo basically and they posed they, they posted a video to youtube of what was called their truck in motion that was the phrase they used but what they really did was just tow the truck to the top of the hill and put it in neutral and let the thing coast down a hill and so matt levine's comment there was that if you're a venture capital fund what's the right amount of lying that you would want amongst your founders and portfolio companies? Because clearly the answer is not zero or else you're not getting aggressive enough companies out there, optimistic enough companies. But clearly you don't want too much lying or you're going to be saddled with a bunch of total disasters and frauds that end up going to zero. And I thought that was really, really interesting. But I think I have a slightly different opinion. I'm not sure that I've ever been convinced as to why the answer is not zero. I for the simple reason that I just see this as being such a slippery slope where a little lie that starts out as an exaggeration, that starts out as a reality distortion field, which we'll come back to in a minute, the famous Steve Jobs issue, can really turn very quickly into an Enron type situation. I've talked about this a lot. It's one of the directions almost exactly to the day, I guess it was two days ago or maybe yesterday, the 20 year anniversary of Enron filing for bankruptcy which is pretty hard to believe. And, and I'm of the strong belief that, that did not start out as a fraud. It's not like somebody woke up one morning and said, let's commit some epic fraud here. But it was a series of little lies that compounded on each other. And in my strongly held opinion and belief, based on lots of anecdotal evidence that can't be proven, that you know, there's, there's plenty of counterfactuals out there. But I think lies compound on themselves, just like compound interest works on money. And so I think the right answer is that lies should be tolerated at a level as close to zero as possible. This isn't a a judgment about humanity. I'm not perfect. Certainly I have lied. Certainly I will unfortunately lie again as much as I might not want to or set out to do it. It's a flaw of humanity. We're all flawed, messy human beings. So this is not a moralistic judgment, which is where the author actually goes with this at the end. Yeah, he kind of gets critical about, you know, burning them at the stake, burning liars at the stake and that sort of thing. And it's like that's that's not really my point. My point is that if you set out to tolerate a little bit of lying, it becomes really hard not to end up with a lot of lying. And so I, I've just I've seen so much of this over the years. I mean, I'll never forget when I was a brand new analyst, fresh out of school, and I walked face first into the financial crisis. And you know, I thought back then the most important thing I could do would be to read the original source documents and then ask questions about things that I didn't understand. And I discovered this kind of hidden reinsurance vehicle inside of Wachovia. It was disclosed, but not talked about. And it was reasonably material to the overall company. And at a meeting, I asked the CFO about the company and he denied its very existence. 
And I thought I must have misheard him. And so I followed up and I said, no, no, what about this right here? It's this. And he got extremely angry and basically stormed off. And I realized that, you know, he he lied to my face and, and that was that. And we all know how the Wachovia thing ended and it wasn't all directly cause and effect of this one lie or mistruth. But I think it it, it resembles, you know, when when the culture is is permissive in the sense of allowing a lot of lying, I think it becomes very hard to figure out where the truth ends and begins. And you're seeing this right now with the Theranos trial, right? I mean, as we're recording this, I think the Theranos defense rested yesterday. We'll see what the ultimate verdict comes back is, but it's basically the Silicon Valley making until you make it culture on trial, right? And, And I think what's so fascinating about that is you get a lot of Silicon Valley types and a lot of venture capital types who say, look, the world is uncertain. And actually, the author of this essay makes the same point. The world is uncertain. We don't know how to get from A to B because B doesn't exist yet. And so in doing that and in convincing investors and employees to join me on this magical ride from here to the future unknown, I have to invent things, create things, bend the truth a little bit. And that's, I guess I'm sympathetic to that argument. But again, I just find it so difficult to say, like, how do you draw the line between saying, oh, we're absolutely going to develop a product X, we're absolutely going to deliver this good or service by a certain date when you know that you can't or you you don't have the ability to presently and committing bigger lies, right? I mean, it's just like a a basic foundational teaching that when you're in a hole, you stop digging. And I think a lot of people dig a hole deeper by telling these lies, right? I mean, I I struggle to find sometimes a single company in the healthcare industry that hasn't been fined for some sort of regulatory dispute, some sort of messy litigation where they basically got caught lying or cheating or stealing. And it it gets really, really difficult, I think, to then trust anybody within the industry. And I think you see it at a societal level. I think that's a giant reason why you see the rise of Bitcoin right now is that a lot of people feel like they can't trust the government because of previous things that they have decided are are lies or deceptive. And so now they're going to take the currency into their own hands. And we'll see how that works out. But I do think most of them would agree that that's actually a big reason why that has come about. So I I guess the question I have is, what do you guys think is the right level of lying? How much lying should you tolerate in your own businesses? How much much lying should you tolerate in the companies you're looking at and potentially investing in? Because at least in my own practice and in my own life, I've kept a pretty strict line at it. Like if I get lied to, that's pretty much a hard stop, right? I'm you know, I'm very much willing to do the trust but verify framework. But when I trust and then verify and find out that I've been lied to, it tends to be it, right? I, I tend to not forgive and forget or say, oh, that's how business works, or that's just healthcare, or that's just venture investing, or whatever the case may be. You know, and again, I think that's actually a good reason. There's a quick digression why I made both a good and a bad short seller was because I think a lot of short sellers take a very moralistic crusade kind of aspect to their to their business and to their research. And in a lot of ways, I think that's very good and very healthy for the market and the, and the country and the economy. In a lot of ways, I think it's very bad and very dangerous for them because you get so caught up in righting a wrong that you can sort of miss the forest for the trees there as well as a short seller. So that, that gets really tricky. But anyway, what do you, what do you guys think? Am I, am I missing the boat on this or how much lying do you think we should tolerate in general? So, I mean, I've got thoughts on this. (laughs) I don't know if I have answers, but I've got thoughts. Um, you know, when a leader stands up in front of their followers, uh, whether it be a business leader or a politician, and says something like, we will get through this, um, when they have personal doubts, but their role is to get up there and lead, you know, is that a lie? Or is that 
something a little different, right? But then you start thinking about how, you know, Thomas Edison was not all that different than Elon Musk in some of the things he'd said, or like Steve Jobs in the reality distortion um, that Isaacson describes in the bio. Um, Steve Jobs wasn't quite as public with it. Edison was, I think, very similar to Musk. Uh, I mean, the irony of uh, the guy whose company's name is Tesla being more like Edison. Um and making these proclamations that at the time he knew had no chance of being true and then, you know, panicking and trying to pull it all together. Um, are those lies? If you eventually deliver on them, are they still lies? Um, you know, there's a fine line between Elizabeth Holmes and Elon Musk. And I don't know, you know, <laughs> in, in some ways, like what, where there are or are not certain differences. Um I also don't know if like, I, I don't think, I don't get the sense that lying is more prevalent now than it was in the past because of examples like Edison and because, you know, like they call these people colloquially snake oil salesmen. Well, that's something that was from the past, you know, over a hundred years ago, that was a, that was a thing. Um, and we have certain regulatory bodies because there were companies who were willing to lie about things um, to get their way. You know, um, that's the reality of it. Um so do we have more lying today than in the past? I don't really know. I, I don't know if I'm in a position to truly judge. Uh, but then there are other cases where like, you know, Phil, you kind of brought something up similar to this. But I, I, I recall just the other day, Mike Spicer um, tweeted, you realize that an error in a spreadsheet you presented overstates revenue by 10%. Instead of owning up to it, you think I'll make it work. And so it begins. The longer you stay on the treadmill, the harder it is to get off. Little lies become big lies. Big lies become fraud. And, you know, in in a sense, that seems to be what happened with Madoff, where there was like one moment where there was something patched up and yep. it didn't fully get patched up and it just spirals and snowballs. And once you are in too deep, you pass the point of no return. And so to me, I mean, the the that story is a big part of why even little lies are not okay because they are the kind of thing that if something doesn't go right with it, a little lie becomes a very big lie. Um, and, you know, I think that's very problematic. And, I, you know, I share your sense of moral outrage at, at, at that kind of lying. But I do throw back the question, you know, when a leader stands up and says, we'll get through this, even if they, let's say they think there's only a 10% chance of, that you do, like, is that a lie? Or like, what, you know, to me, that's kind of okay. But I view that through a very different prism. And I do think yeah. if there's one uh, playing field where perhaps things have gotten a little scary in the degree to which lie, I mean, politicians have never been known as the most honest group of people. Um, but there are lies that are very provably false. Like, it's one thing to lie and say, like, you know, I did all this for my people and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But it's another thing to say, like, you know, the sky's, the sky's not blue. And there are those kinds of lies that have become a little uh, more common. And that's very troubling to me, too. So I'll throw that question yeah. back at you. Like, what you know, uh, on the leader standing up saying, we'll get through this. Like, is that a lie? Is that bad? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's a lie. It's certainly not a lie in the concept of what I was referring to originally, which is more of a concrete, intentional, misleading statement that says, you know, 
I can make you 25% a year guaranteed, never a down year kind of thing, right? Like that's just not true. I know it's not true. You know, it's not true. And I'm lying to you for marketing and self-gain purposes, right? A leader standing up and saying, we'll get through this when he knows there's a real chance they won't. You know, I, I, that that may or may not be a. But why not say to, to people do. prepare for the worst? <laughs> you know, like because yeah, right, their That's lives I mean. better, right? Correct. So that may or may not be a smart thing, but it's hard for me to argue that it's a intentional deception for self gain necessarily, which is where I guess I would draw the line. And so, I I think it's harder. I mean, look, this is the kind of thing that you you'd have a debate on the on the quad you know, at 19 years old, when you've walked out of your first philosophy class and think you figured out the world, right? So I'm not going to add any like nuance to the things that we've been wrestling about since the days of the ancient Greeks and and before that. But I I do think it's interesting because of the attention it's getting right now to your point, which I think is an excellent one, which I didn't make earlier. I rejected the premise last year that we're in a golden age of fraud, because I think fraud is basically cyclical, not, you know, a secular trend. And I think that it tends to be cyclical and correlated with expansionary times and in free or readily available money, more or less. Whereas in politics, it, it maybe is more cyclical with cultural norms or something that are a little harder to define. So I agree. It's, it's fascinating how many of what we consider now the luminary leading business people of their day were not only morally flawed in lots of other ways, but they were just outright liars in lots of ways. And in lots of ways that are very similar, right? I mean, your point about Elon Musk or plenty of the other folks out there that we could point to, they, they have a lot of similarities over time. And that's where I think this notion has developed. So I should have mentioned this, but the framework that the author lays out in this article that I started with is that there's three stories to explain lies. Story number one is that it's just not that bad. It's much ado about nothing. And that you agreed to be lied to by either listening to the sales pitch or signing up as an investor or buying the product or whatever. They're just trying, you know, every business is a struggle, a race against time, and they're just trying to make the future come true. I I disagree with that personally, or I'll come back to to where I shake out on this. But story number two is that this is just an exaggeration. Every company promises features. It hopes to be able to ship someday. And this is the jobs, Steve Jobs and, and reality distortion field, which to me, again, maybe I'm splitting hairs, but was a little bit more of an internal motivational tactic, which is again, questionable, but less of a bald-faced lie than necessarily the the Elon Musk version that we were talking about, or certainly the Theranos version that we were talking about, right? Uh, he, he lied about plenty of other things that we don't go into. But one thing that was really interesting here is there's actually a study, and I don't know how valid the study was, but he cited a study showing that angel investors actually valued preparation in the pitch and like a broadly disruptive, sexy kind of appeal to the company way more than they cared about exaggerations or lies. And the only thing they care about, and and he he cites uh, the Nikola thing where he promised like some sort of supercomputer that just technically doesn't and couldn't exist. What, What they really care about is that not that they're being lied to, but that the lie can't be clumsy and stupid. So if you tell somebody a lie that's like two plus two equals five and like any preschooler knows that's not true and you do it in a way that's like artful and inept, that gets people pissed off. But if you tell people some really sexy, deceptive lie, and Matt Levine kind of paints this very beautifully in his writing as he always does, where you put your arm around somebody's shoulder and tell them to close their eyes and picture this beautiful future and you can lead them there and let's go do this. And you know that you can or won't, but you're, you're just selling them a bill of goods. 
that people are okay with. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. And then the third story is that liars have broken a sacred covenant and should be burned at the stake, basically. And so I don't, I don't subscribe to any of the three in a hard and fast form. I think they all have valid components of them. But I think my point that I keep coming back to is exactly what you just said and what I started with in the beginning, which is just that lies are so tricky because they snowball. And and I agree about Madoff. I agree about all these things, right? I, I think that's probably true about Theranos, right? I mean, I think there were probably reasonably good intentions at the beginning and the lies just got completely out of control and taken way too far. And that's how we ended up with this disaster. So I would say I would take probably a almost a jurisprudence legalistic approach that intent matters and intent matters right at the outset. And that, you know, if if the intent is to mislead and deceive, it's not a good idea. It's not worth doing for the simple reason, not because I'm a better, more moral person than the next, just because in a practical sense, we can all agree that they snowball and things get really out of control. And it's a quick way to ruin your life and ruin the lives of a lot of people around you. I can also imagine that caring a lot about what other people think of you or about other people's expectations or, you know, being put on the cover of magazines when you haven't really delivered anything substantive yet um, can push some people toward um, lying and uh, deceiving and defrauding uh, because they, they don't have the strength to kind of say, hey, I did not meet your expectations or actually this product is going to fail or actually I don't deserve to be on that cover. So, you know, that I, I can see that being another uh, factor that pushes some, some people into lying. Uh, but I also feel like the standards have, have eroded over time. Although as Elliot said, um, tough to say whether there's more lying now or at some points in the past, but um, I I remember talking to a a friend of mine who who went to a top business school at the time, and basically this stuck in my mind because basically what he was telling me is kind of what they're, or kind of part of the culture, what what they were learning uh, there, or what he learned while at at that top business school was that basically the the goal is to have plausible deniability. So the goal is not to tell the truth, uh, <laughs> but basically to just be able to kind of not be totally exposed uh, with a bold-faced lie, but to be able to kind of talk your way out of it. You know, that's, yeah. that, that, that's I think, what he meant by that. Um, and, and I also feel like um, some of the kind of uh, legalistic uh, language that we've put in place in various areas of our uh, business lives um, kind of supports um, this this trend. I mean, when you look at Sarbanes-Oxley and that safe harbor statement that's read at the beginning of every um, earnings call, and nobody pays attention to that anymore. By the way, it's like, oh, here's the f- legal legal stuff. Let's skip over that. I don't think any investor even pays attention. But what that safe harbor statement basically means is we can now lie all we want, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, or yeah. um, having directors' insurance and things like this. It's basically insulated the insiders 
from lying. And maybe there should be a way where, you know, you can't actually just completely lie and make stuff up. I mean, if, you know, you, you can make errors and you can be wrong and so forth, but uh, now they've kind of protected themselves against uh, bold-faced lying. And then you have investors who in a lot of cases also don't really care. I mean, I remember when uh, the, uh, that report came out about Nikola that you know, they just pushed the truck down the hill. A lot of investors didn't really, didn't really care about it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and that's kind of where we're at. And, and the political dimension here, I think, is also something that's taken on a whole new level uh, given social media and how easy it is to spread uh, falsehoods and, and lies. And kind of uh, there's been, in a sense, a war on truth uh, because uh, I think for dictators, it's, it's, it's a great thing to kind of make it seem like truth doesn't even exist. And then the dictator becomes the arbiter of what is true. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about that at a societal level. Like what is social media or the current age of media mean cable news included right and it's funny if you go back and there, there's plenty of precedent even for that in history right i mean there, there were you know when the when the printing press the gutenberg bible and all these things that came out as a, as a result of the printing press were they were miracles but in a lot of sense it led to a first round of so-called fake news and and total distortion of of the truth and so i i tend to believe that people or people and technology just changes the way that they can implement their tactics. And so that, that's a bit of a digression. But one thing I wanted to follow up on, John, that I think is a great point that, that I meant to make earlier was your comment about like, let's just have a forward-looking statement where we can just make stuff up and, and there's no accountability for it. The, the same applies even more so when it comes to SPACs, because SPACs may have certain advantages, right? Like I get it, the IPO market is by no means perfect. It'd be the last person to defend it. But SPACs would not exist today if they didn't allow you to basically have an IPO with lots of forward-looking projections that don't have to be even remotely tethered to reality, right? If you're going to undertake a traditional IPO, you cannot issue all these crazy forward numbers. And then when you, when you have a SPAC, you can. When, when you bring a company public via SPAC, you can absolutely do that. And that is why I think you're seeing a real uptick in some of the malfeasance we're talking about now, the so-called golden age of fraud, it's directly tied to that, right? The, the advent of the SPAC and a SPAC technology in the sense that you can issue all this crazy forward-looking guidance and, and these rosy projections and say, yeah, sure, we don't have a product right now. We literally have zero revenue, but just wait. By 2030, we're, we're going to have 90% of this market that's grown 50% a year for that decade. Like that wouldn't be possible. And it's a perfect match for the current times. And maybe we have an agreement to be lied upon it, lied to if we give our capital and rested upon those assumptions. I don't know. John, I think it's really funny to hear plausible deniability invoked here because if I recall, it was a phrase invented uh, or, or coined by the CIA to make sure they could do some really bad stuff and the politicians who are actually elected officials could plausibly deny any knowledge or involvement in it. And it became its own slippery slope to doing, uh, you know, not just illegal stuff, but increasingly worse stuff along the way. Um, and so 
you know, I, I it, once you buy into the notion that you could say things with plausible deniability, I just think, you know, it's uh, the kind of thing that opens doors to worse and yet worse. Yeah, for sure. And it's it certainly, I mean, plausible deniability is exactly how every organized crime in an organization or family has ever worked, right? You keep you keep the head of the organized crime family at such a level that he or she always has plausible deniability, right? That's like a founding principle of any sort of mafia style or cartel organization. Well, and it gets to another thing, which is that this kind of behavior is inherently like egocentric and narcissistic. Like it's it's very built around personalities. I think that's part of why we're telling the story with a lot of people that that are famous. Uh, but there's like, you know, more subtle shades of it. One that I'd wonder, I ask you guys about, uh, a friend gave me this example of, of a company. Let's say you're, you're a site that hosts videos and you know 500,000 people watch the video, but you say it's 5 million, right? Is that a lie? Is that bad? Like, you know, there are other com- all kinds of companies that start counters at like higher numbers than they actually are to make it give the illusion, right? What's the difference between an illusion and a lie at that point? Um, is yeah, that okay? It's funny. And, and I don't, yeah, I'd say no, I guess, without passing moral judgment. But, you know, two things stand out. And this is actually how I was going to close and, and ask you guys is what would you do? Because there's a great case to be made that we would not have Berkshire Hathaway, at least under the name and structure that we know it today, had the CEO at the time not lied to Warren Buffett, right? Because he said he was going to tender his stock at X and he chiseled him for an eighth or whatever it was and it pissed Buffett off. And next thing you know, he's bought control of the company and taken it over, right? So my, my question, I guess, in, in response to your question is, I think so. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to draw a line. But I, I guess the thing that I struggle most with, most with is, what do you do when somebody in a professional setting lies to you? Right? How how do you handle it? How do you respond? Is it forgive and forget? Is it wink, wink, nod, nod? Is it this is just how things go? And I guess the answer, of course, depends on what the lie is. You know, I guess if it's if it's a violation of trust, if it's you know a clear black and white issue, I, I tend to draw a pretty hard line. I but I wonder, do you guys see it differently? Yeah, I mean, in the example I gave, literally no one's hurt. Um, so there's like no one truly on the other side of the lie. I don't know. I don't know what I think, but when someone lies to me in business or in life, I um, immediately mark down the value of that relationship, right? To next to nothing. Um, I think, you know, it's very hard to give people second chances um, in like blatant lies. You know, if someone tells me that, um, they can't go to dinner because their kid's sick and their kid's not sick. I don't know. I'm not going to write them off. Like they just wanted an right. excuse, but you know, an actual lie where there's consequence, I think, um, you know, that's something, that's something very different. And I'm, I'm pretty harsh in condemning those um, with companies, the way I think about it, you know, I, I give them like two chances to say something that's falsifiable and um, you know, prove, to be the opposite. So I give a two strike policy because I do think there's, uh, and that's partly because, you know, I don't know whether it's a lie the first time it could be, they had bad information or there could be all kinds of reasons why that happened. But if it happens again, um, you know, it's probably something more cultural. And so that's how I've treated it with two strikes. Yeah. I, I, I'd say I probably don't have a ton of tolerance for, lying either um not 
not really sure what uh, what more I can say. It depends on the situation, but I feel like you can kind of tell um, what kind of lie it is or what kind of intent it is. And, um, you know, that saying the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth exists for a reason because it's not just truth. There's also like omitting things that would be helpful to know uh, in a certain context and so forth. So if you omit something that's actually uh, very important, that's kind of like um, like lying, right? And, you know, one one Twitter profile I saw that I thought was, uh, was really funny uh, was somebody saying they had invested more than 100 million in startups. And, um, and that's probably a person who's not even worth 10 million. <laughs> so basically, basically, yeah, that can happen. Or, or if you think about a day trader uh, with a million dollars to invest, that day trader could say, I've invested more than a billion in the leading corporations. And all that means is I've bought and sold uh, stock uh, in that amount. Uh, so yeah, it, that, that to me is not telling the truth. Was that a real person in Twitter? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Or it was actually, that anonymous? It was, I think a real person actually. Yeah. I don't remember the name, but it was, you know, somebody who's kind of in the VC Twitter sphere startup investing and so forth but it just is not believable that that person would at any time have more than a hundred million invested in startups <laughs> it, it's it's more that yeah it would be an amount that gets recycled over time or who knows how it's it's calculated so you know it's clearly intended to deceive but i'm sure they're would be an explanation of some sort uh, if someone wanted uh, an explanation. Yeah, I asked that partly because also I think, you know, especially with anonymous accounts, there are two kinds of people. Like one could say, I invested a hundred million and yada, yada, yada. You're like, yeah, they very well might have. And another, you know, might say it. And, you know, I think with some of these things, especially when anonymity is involved, you know, there's uh, a line between performative and those who are trying to be real but anonymous. So that further confounds some of these questions. So I, I think it's a really interesting, like like Phil said, like out on the college quad sort of debate on ethics. And I don't think there are any fine answers, like exact answers, but I think we do all agree on certain key principles, you know. I think we tend to approach the world with that view that lying is inherently not good. Um, and, you know, some of these questions, uh, I, I like asking them. I like thinking about them. I don't know the answer to the leader who says, um, you know, everything's going to be okay when they deeply believe otherwise. Like, you know, it can make, can make either case, but I think that's not something dangerous. Right, absolutely. So the context matters. It's it's an important uh, topic for sure. I'm glad we uh, addressed it a little bit um, on this episode, and it's uh, a topic of great relevance to investors uh, as well. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Elliot and Phil, thank you so much, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Take care for now. 
Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.